This is Rise and Grind. And I'm Damon John. And I turned $40 into the multi-billion dollar brand FUBU. I'm also a shark on ABC Shark Tank and a consultant to brands, businesses, entrepreneurs, executives, and celebrities all over the world. For my new book, Rise and Grind, I sat down with some of my highly successful peers from all different industries to see how they conquered their goals. And in this podcast, I'm going to give you an in-depth, inside look into the daily habits and routines of each of my guests to find out how exactly they make the most of their 24 hours. Rising Grind is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter has helped businesses of all sizes find great people. And right now, listeners to my podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. A little later, it's grow time with ZipRecruiter CEO and co-founder Ian Siegel. Ian will share some insight on pivotal moments that help businesses and their leaders grow. Today, we're going to discuss some of the challenges of building his team. Stick around for that. If you're struggling to hone your physical strength and test the limits of what you're capable of, there is no better inspiration than Cal Maynard. This is one of my favorite interviews while working on Rise and Grind, and something I often think about when I need perspective. Kyle was born as a congenital amputee, a rare condition that caused him to never fully develop arms and legs in the womb. But before you jump to conclusions, let me brag about this guy. He was a high school wrestling champ, whooping other kids with full abilities, and went on to win weightlifting competitions, fight MMA, and even climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Incapable was never in his vocabulary, and I hope this mental strength will stick with you and remind you that you can go further than you ever thought you could. Talking about rise and grind with a really inspirational person, motivational speaker, uh, a lot of accolades. Obviously, you can tell there's a difference between him and I. He has hair. I don't. Uh, so Not for wanna... long, though. <laughs> Introducing you to Kyle Maynard. Kyle and I got introduced by uh, a friend of ours. Maury told me about it. I, you know, looked up some videos and looked up Kyle, and then I just felt like I just really haven't accomplished anything in life. And I had to call him in, and I wanted to talk to you about it because, you know, my Rise and Grind book and, and what we're doing today is to show people the methods that many different people practice and try to find a commonality on a daily way that people practice to be better. All right, so why don't we start off with where you're from? I was born in uh, Washington, D.C. My dad was military, and um, actually I was born at the biggest uh, hospital now or, uh, called Walter Reed, where so many of our soldiers have like, gone overseas and gone through an amputation or they come back home to do the rehabilitation. So and it just happened to be that um, parents had no idea I'd be born with any type of disability, and mm-hmm. um, then I was, and you know things were confusing, and there was definitely some fear and doubt at first, but they made some pretty important decisions just to try to focus on, on the good and focus on you know, what was right. So you were born with this gift or, or, or challenge or disability, whatever people want to call it. And you have any siblings? Three sisters, yeah. Older, younger? Younger, yeah. Younger. What doesn't kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're growing up and you're going through, you know, through school and everything else. How, how was that for you? 
I think it was, it was both. It's interesting that you say like gift, right? Because I, I view being born as like um, the way that I was is, mm-hmm. is by far the greatest gift I've ever been given. And at the time, like when I was growing up, there were moments for sure where I, I didn't see that, you know, and uh, moments where it was like, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be different from other kids. Um, but, you know, I had, my parents were phenomenal in terms of my mom, especially like she would go out and like organize like uh, neighborhood street hockey games or whatever she could do, you know, like we didn't have a ton of money, but like mm-hmm. dad was in school, like mom, you know, was working like part time, but like we would buy like a Super Nintendo. So like kids would want to come to my house to play. Mm-hmm. Kids can be cruel, but kids can also be super supportive. And you said, you know, that it was hard on you because you wanted to be like others, but how were the kids' reactions to you? Were some afraid of you? Were some super supportive? And were some mean? All the above. So my first sport that I played was was football. You know, that was like kind of first like organized sport and um, had amazing teammates that like, I mean, that they embraced me being on the team. I played nose guard, defensive line. Like, you know, when running backs, linemen would go and come or try to block me. Some of them had no idea to block me. I'd just dive, <laughs> dive under their legs, uh-huh. whatever I could do. Like, they try to belly flop down on top of me. Like, <laughs> I'd take my helmet and smash it in the running back's legs as hard as I could. Like, that was, you know, if I, like, the coaches and the kids there were amazing. But there were also two times where, yeah, I mean, kids, you know, they'd be curious and asking, you know, 20 times, you know, what happened to your arms and legs? What happened to your arms and legs? Yeah. Who or what gave you the confidence to feel at such a young age that you can play sports like that? Was it because you're around the house and you're super active? Uh, did you say, I want to do that? And somebody in your family said, absolutely. Or somebody outside said, hell no, you can't. What was the motivation to want to do that? It was, uh, it was both sides again. I mean, it was like that light in the dark, right? There was for sure... <laughs> You know, something inside of me that wanted to go and prove to other people like that I wasn't helpless. You know, so many of my strengths were really to bury that fear of like being seen as, as helpless. Right, but you know, to see you moving around, walking, operating, it's clear you're not helpless. Right. But you don't want to show you're not helpless. You want to show I want to kick somebody's ass. So right. like that 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 was the reason why, right? Yeah, it was just it was like my parents had that like mentality of like pulling like the ultimate like Jedi mind trick, right? Where it's like you're not disabled, and mm-hmm. you know I'm like not disabled. Like we were talking before this interview, you know I was 18 years old before I knew like um, the name of the condition. I still don't even know the technical name. Right, it was like right. congenital it just, it amputation. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't like the central focus that they had. And I think that that like if you know so many times I think you know people and kids we get wrapped up in you know, like our identity of this one thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then like, um, whether it's a condition or something, it can kind of become a limiting factor. Even something that's really good can be a limitation, right? Yeah. Like I see with you, like, you know, you're an entrepreneur, but you're way more than an entrepreneur. You're not just that like one thing. Yeah, you know? I know, I, I, so I get it, but I'm, I was just trying to wrap my head around, what was your day like in regards to academics, in regards to trying to move ahead and and just be the best person you could be you know it was uh i had a lot of people you know understandably and and thankfully offer different like you know offer help in different ways right but to me i I wanted to do things as normal as possible like there was something inside of me you don't you don't use prosthetics yeah at all i used them when i was a kid but um it was actually about a month into kindergarten that i decided to get rid of the things and um i was in a show and tell class you decided yeah, it was kind of collective with me and my mom. My mom was watching, um, watching me in the show and tell. Like they would invite parents when the kid was presenting 
for, for their show and tell day that they got to go in. The parents would watch. My mom was watching me, and um, I was playing with my toy. I had these prosthetic arms on with hooks on the end of them and prosthetic legs with like a buckle to collapse a knee. Mm -hmm. And I dropped my toy on the ground, and I couldn't jump out and grab it. Like now without the prosthetics, it'd be no problem. Like pick it up and grab it. But with the prosthetic legs on and the arms, I couldn't. I was like immobile. And uh, teacher had to pass me the toy, and then I was so embarrassed like I wanted to run out of the room but I couldn't and um, my mom and the teacher were talking and my mom I told her that night I said uh, that I wanted to come to school without my arms and legs on the next day called them my big arms and big legs mm -hmm. and so the teacher thankfully she she went along with it and um, she said just wait to bring Kyle for the second half of school and like she talked to the kids in the first half and explained like okay Kyle had arms and legs yesterday but he's not <laughs> going to today <laughs> What are you doing? Right. So I got to play with the kids late and told the teacher that they liked me better like that. And that was the last time I ever wore them. What were your hobbies at that time? I was way more into athletics growing up, you know? Because you, you, you were um, on a wrestling team, right? Yep. How did that go? Started really, really bad. People were saying it was almost like borderline child abuse that my parents were making me do it. Uh -huh. And ended up... But you wanted to do it. Yeah, it was a combination. I mean, it was also, I wanted to do it for sure at first, but when I started and I signed up, then I wanted to quit. 35 straight, I lost. Nobody was taking it easy on you. I, you know, my dad tricked me into coming back out and wrestling as a seventh grader. He basically said he didn't win a single match his first year either, and I knew that he'd become a great wrestler later on and all this stuff. And I found out um, when I was interviewing my grandpa, my dad's dad, for my book that that was complete lie. <laughs> he just lied to you. Like just straight lied to me. And he said though that <laughs> um, that he won his first year, like uh, or that, that second season. He said everybody wins a match for second season because you're gonna beat somebody who was there for a season. So <laughs> that's a good way to look yeah. at it. You started winning? Started winning a lot. Where were you guys ranking like? So I ended up wrestling um, junior varsity and varsity and um, for one of the top teams in the southeast, and we were ranked like 35 in the top 35 in the nation, oh, and nice. um, had uh, won over 100, 100 matches in high school and placed top 12 in the nation in my weight class. But it was kind of funny too, it's such a transition because people at that point were saying that like I was unfairly advantaged over their kids, you know. What was well, like, well, well, the advantage now? Because in wrestling, it's all about. Um, it's your, your weight class, right? Mm -hmm. So they're saying that <laughs> I didn't have the extra arm and leg uh, weight, right? So uh, it was... <laughs> so people always find reasons oh, to yeah. point the finger and say that they're... I mean, because everybody exactly. says to me that because I look like Brad Pitt that I get all the roles <laughs> right. or whatever. So yeah, no matter what, yeah. People will find always a reason to point at you and say that um, you had an advantage, believe it or not. Yeah, it was mostly the parents of the kids that I was beating that were saying that. <laughs> yeah, <of course. laughs> You know, the, the persistence that you had to do whatever you want to do, are you a person who no matter what you take on, you're going to do it? Yeah, it's, I think, you know, looking at like a lot of different experiences, even like something as simple as like, you know, it was 45 minutes to, to put on my socks for the first time. And, you know, I used a paper clip in my, like reshaped it to form like a fishing hook. Because right. my mom used to put on my socks before school, and she wasn't there to help me. My friend wanted to take me to a movie. It took me 45 minutes to pull a sock on for the first time, and now like it takes right on. 10 seconds. So, throughout my life, I've realized that like there's like a front-loaded period of a lot of failure that has to occur, right? A lot of learning curve, right? It's mm -hmm. like the experience curve, like, and then 
you know, at a certain point, a certain threshold, I know it's going to tip, and you know, I'll be in a totally different spot. Like, it's like an actual example for you to see, like, you know, if I put on a sock. It's a long ass sock. It's a long ass sock. I don't even know, right? <laughs> how do we how do we express to people that it takes time, no matter what, where they can quantify that? You got to measure it. I think it's a big part of it. You got to like be able to like look back and reflect and see like the extent to which you can tell your the truth to yourself about something, I think is really, like that's a powerful first step. Being truthful to yourself. Yeah. You know, Bruce Lee, he said, uh, I don't fear the guy that knows a thousand kicks. I fear the guy that's practiced one kick a thousand times. That is very true. So I know you go through college. So what starts to happen? So because of this sort of like this debate when I started winning a lot in wrestling, right? And this debate of sort of like, is, do I have an unfair advantage? I think there was a legitimate debate going on there, uh, even more than I realized inside of the wrestling community and otherwise. Uh, but I got to do um, some media. Did um, like a, I was in high school and did a HBO Real Sports, and that led to getting to do a live interview on Larry King for an hour. Eighteen years old, scared out of my mind, but mm -hmm. like, um, it was amazing. It was my favorite interview that I've ever done. Larry asked some yeah. tough questions. He just comes right uh, out he at you. He comes at it, man. It's yeah. like he doesn't hold back. Like he, like literally I was 18 years old and he asked me about having sex on CNN. I'm like, my, my, my grandparents are watching. You know, and he's like, just, he's, he's, he's. I told him, I was like, it's not that much different than a wrestling match though, right? Did you? <laughs> so, did you? <laughs> so the um, PR department there got in touch with Oprah and, um, and she, uh, had me on and that was like you know I mean you, you get it like the yeah. you know the Oprah effect I mean it was like life was never the same after that you know within the year of, of releasing the book on Oprah I was speaking at these events and like I'm standing on stage and I was giving speeches with like then at the time Senator Barack Obama mm -hmm. like Colin Powell you know I'm like you know, Michael Phelps I'm like wow. what am I doing here Listen, there's a lot of people that go on Oprah that go back home you know, the halo effect lasts for a little while. They go back with their normal lives or whatever the life they were having. What, what makes you want to take this path after that? Well, looking back on it, I think, like, you know, it was almost like a spider web of like, yeah, I mean, the money was part of it, but it was also like I could make a difference in people. I could travel. I could do these different things. I mean, you know, it was amazing opportunities. I mean, it's a rush to, to be on stage in front of a couple thousand people. And, you know, I mean, it's even though I was like frightened, I was like still like psyched up. And, you know, I mean, it was... It was just cool. How old are you at this point? 20. What was yeah. your day looking like? I think at, at 20, mm -hmm. you know, I'd wake up and like, you know, eat a room service breakfast mm -hmm. and, you know, pack my bag, go to the airport, fly, you know, connect in a different city, get on another plane, go to a different you, city by myself. What were you doing while you were flying? You by yourself? Yeah. What so were you doing while you were flying? I started reading a lot then and I started realizing though that I could dictate what I was learning instead of having somebody give me a textbook and like you have to learn this you know it was like I could choose what I wanted to learn so I started books about journalists Thomas Friedman who wrote for the New York Times and like some other people like that like I read about their life stories I started reading different biographies and it um just became very curious about people's lives and people that achieved like greatness even though at the same time I'm like not really feeling that great myself I was eating airport food like gained a decent amount of weight, mm -hmm. like was just... Yeah, life on the road. Yeah, life on the road. And those non-traveling days, 
at the time I'd spent at 20, I spent about a year and I lived in Iowa. I followed a girl out there, training some on and off at um, the, at the time, like the top MMA training studio in the world. It was like- Mixed martial arts? Yeah. You were training for that? Yeah. Well, because you had a wrestling background. Yeah. Right? yeah. Okay. The, the physical has always been, I think, like the easiest like access to sort of stay grounded yeah. in the midst of like all this craziness that's going on, even against some of these high level guys or whatever, like I would be in this gym and like there's like a purity to like a combat sport because mm -hmm. you can't really think about anything else. You can't think about whatever stresses of any trips that you've got coming up. You can't mm -hmm. think about your taxes because the second you do, somebody's going to choke you. Mm -hmm. And so it's like it's sort of like a form of like moving meditation mm -hmm. in a way. And that became like, I think like the, the, you know, just like the one thing to keep me sort of like level and grounded in that period where it was just all this craziness going on. In Athens, Georgia, where I went to school, University of Georgia, I was training with Forrest Griffin and like the fight team mm -hmm. there. And um, I'm a big UFC fan and yeah. a Forrest fan. Forrest, uh, I told him one time that the only way that he'd ever submit me was with a choke, mm -hmm. you know, cause it was like, you're not gonna arm bar me, not gonna like leg lock me. And he spent like 20 minutes had me in a body triangle behind mm -hmm. me, like literally like pulling my like arm off, almost off my head. Did he submit you? Yeah, he's the only <laughs> one. Now we're gonna take a quick break because it is grow time with my man, Ian Siegel, CEO of Zip Recruiter. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me, Damon. Ian, so you know how important people are. What were the challenges that you faced while building your team? Well, there were a lot of challenges, but probably the hardest part of running a rapidly growing business is that the people who are right when you start aren't necessarily right for the next phase. Mm -hmm. And looking someone in the eye that you've gone to war with that feels like family and telling them that you either need to change their role or you need to move them out is a tough conversation. And what makes it worse is if they're surprised by the conversation. Right. So. One of the disciplines I practice is honest in the moment feedback. It's so hard to do, but it pays such big dividends for you over the long term if you tell people what you're thinking all the way through. So transparency is key. Absolutely. Honest communication. That was ZipRecruiter CEO Ian Siegel, and we'll hear from him again later when he shares some thoughts on knowing when you're ready to start a company. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So try it for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. What tools or things did you do to start getting out of where you were in regards to your, your, your ups and your downs. So at the time, after like a couple years, a year and a half, two years after the Oprah effect started mm -hmm. to fade, mm -hmm. people started to like become less interested and like they wouldn't call as much. Okay. And I got really bored and I was like, screw this. And I started, uh, started a supplement company. Uh huh. And uh, I like made every mistake in the book. I failed like hard, miserably. I threw like 50 grand at this thing and like I had this massive inventory and it was like nobody, Nobody wanted my, you know, stuff. I'm trying to convince people to try my, try a scoop of this, and mm -hmm. but then I was like, okay, what else? So now, how long did it take you? What was that process? The beginning of that venture to when you, you sold it, you closed it, you stopped it. How, what was that process? How long was that? It was uh, only f six months. Six months. But it was like it provided that first sense of like, 
that exposure to like to, to doing something else you know it was mm-hmm. like I don't have to be just a a speaker you mm-hmm. know I started to like turn the wheels on like you know and I, I, I knew at that time I started reading a ton of books on um, you know business and entrepreneurship I started reading about like other great people that you know achieve things in, in, in life and in business and I was like I, I want to replicate that why'd you give them six months though because you know, you're somebody who has learned to take the, you know, take things all the way to the end, even though people say you can't do it. Why would you give that up in six months? It was interesting, and it's interesting that you, uh, you asked that. I think there are certain things I think that you have to, like, cut off, right, that are just like a, just a drain, like, you know, sucking money and time, effort, energy. It was like that you just need to, like, cut it. What I did, though, was became interested in, like, CrossFit and all that. I started training people in my garage. I, you started training people? Yeah. So one of my friends, she was competing for um, Miss Georgia, you know, and they had like the fitness component in that. And I was like, you know, I started training her, I started training other friends. And But how can you train people that aren't challenged like you because there's different motions that they need to go through with, with obviously with arms and legs. How can you train the one that you studied to be a trainer and then you got certified? I was training people way before I was certified. Right, right. Yeah, I was like, it just, I would study it like myself like I dissect it and I think uh, the best coaches are frankly the ones like that can't do it you know they're not going to go and do it themselves it kind of comes back to this like sort of the same theme that we were talking about at the beginning where I didn't see myself as different growing up Mm -hmm. the same applies like the training where are you at now with this gym you're waking up every morning are you starting to see that you have a purpose in life more than your ups and downs are you starting to feel fulfilled from it or is it just another venture? No, man. It was like that became, and it's interesting too with like the power of broke. I went broke with the gym. Like I had poured all the money from the speaking in the book uh-huh. into the gym. And I couldn't even, like I had to get some extra financing. And the, like when the market had tanked was right when I was going through to open it up. Mm-hmm. It, it was one of those things where like I had like to make it work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, like, you know, when you got to make it work, you All make out. it work. Tapped into every resource. So now, tell me, how did you did you make it work? Yeah, the gym actually celebrated its uh, eighth birthday. Uh, what's today? Saturday. It was on um, yeah. uh, eighth birthday on Thursday. This this last week. Well, congratulations. How did you make it work though? Because now I want to know the schedule. Now, your daily schedule. I wake up at five and um, I get a coffee. You know, take a quick shower, head straight to the gym. I. Uh, I'd train people in like the 6 a.m. class. And initially, I was there from about 5.45 to open the doors for that 6 a.m. class until 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. Then you go home? I go home and like pass out on the floor from exhaustion. <laughs> I didn't even make it to the bed sometimes. How long was that grind? How long was that every day at the gym? Up, up at 5, sleep at 12 or 1. How many days or how many years did you do that for? Probably six to eight months of like 24-7. Um, that first year, I was incredibly involved. Um, beyond that, a year and a half to two years, I started to like really empower other people and the staff. We built out an amazing staff. Um, and I started focusing on other projects again. It was like just hungry, like ravenous after that. You know, it was like I wanted, I just wanted to experience more. It was... Um, so it was when the whole Kilimanjaro thing came about, where it was, um, I uh, took that on in 2011. We started working towards it, but it was... Well, a lot of people don't know, yeah. but that's what we're going to get to, which yeah. is uh, an extraordinary feat. You decide that you're going to set another goal. 
climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, right? How many people have successfully climbed Kilimanjaro? I'm not sure the statistics of how many people have done it, but I do know that oh, just about half that take it on fail. People go in and they're not prepared and they underestimate it. And you know, at 19,000 feet, stuff gets weird. I mean, you know, and, and, and things, conditions can come in, weather can come in, yeah. you know, ice and all that you don't, you aren't prepared for. And you're, how long did it take you to prepare? From the inception of the idea to being on a mountain was about, it's about 16 months. And you climbed it, how many days did it take you? The actual climb itself, we projected to take 15 days to reach the summit, and we made it in 10. And you climbed it, no prosthetics, nothing. It was a custom shoe, basically. I did, and I yeah. saw the video custom right. shoes, but I want to make, I want yeah. people to be very, very clear. Paint a picture of it, yeah. yeah. It was um, basically, it was a bear crawl down on all fours for it's a 30 mile trail. Even, you know, you start out just to go in there, so you can imagine you're walking on your elbows and knees for 30 miles, and that's what it was. Now, walking on your elbows and knees for 30 miles up a mountain is a little different than walking for 30 miles. Either way, walk I 30 did miles. 30 miles on my elbow and knees the other night after leaving the bar. <laughs> that, that wasn't awesome. a problem, though. What makes you take on a goal like that? It was just realizing like I needed to listen to the message that I was speaking to other people about, you know, like I was I was spending so much of my time in life like talking to other people about their goals and their dreams and not not living for my, my own. I had wanted to climb Kilimanjaro since I was a kid. You know, I don't even, there was just like an idea that was in my head. I don't know why it was like that important to me, but it was it was just was something that it was there. Like I did a CrossFit competition and it did a tiny mountain, stone mountain, it's only 900 feet, and tore all, like a lot of the skin off the ends of my arms doing it. I had leather welding sleeves going over my arms when I first did it. I came home that night and told my friend, like, I want to climb Kilimanjaro. She said, you're freaking crazy. You know, how are you going to do that? You just tore up your arms doing mm -hmm. stone mountain. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. I think that those words, like, I don't know, are some of the most powerful words in my life. Like, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. What, what do you see today as being the most productive tools that you use, whether mentally, whether physically, the most productive tools you use to, to get ahead? The most impactful thing is a belief in me that like, I can learn anything. I don't care what the industry is. I don't care what the, like, whatever it is. It's a learning curve. And I can put myself on that curve, and I can experience something and learn it. I can dissect it. I can pick it apart, just like you're doing with this book, right? Mm -hmm. It's like... To, you know, it, it, I'm learning to, from you. That's what I want to pick that do. apart. Yeah, oh, and everybody that, that you have, where it's such a diverse group, that you start to realize though, with this diverse group, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if you got, you know, there's a little bit of difference between me and Nelly, right? Mm -hmm. But like at the same time, there's like I think some of those common chords and the common threads, there, it's fundamentals. Yeah. It's like you start to have this like you start to see that's sort of the same. When you see people as a motivational speaker, and you're out there often, when you see people out there. We know there's common goals and fundamentals that we can all apply to our lives. What do you think people's biggest obstacles are when you see them and speak to them? And they see you, and they still think that they can't accomplish anything. What, what would you say is the common things that people fear the most are their biggest obstacles? I think it's when people see themselves as separate from someone else, and they see themselves as having, like, that that person has something that I don't, right? And there may be some truth to that, but to me, I, don't, I think that we're, like, we're tapped into the same source, that if we want something bad enough, that we are able to, like, go and bring it to life. And, you know, like, for me, mm -hmm. I look at you that way, and I'm like, 
you know, in a lot of respects, my goals now are different. I want to, like, I've got two apparel companies I'm starting within the next year, and I'm like, you know, I'm, like, I, I want to dissect, like, what made you you, right? And it's, right. so yeah, I want to go and find people to go and model, like a Kevin Plank or something like that, that, you know, founded Under Armour, that mm-hmm. pick apart, like, how did this work, right? What did they go and b- do and believe? And frankly, I don't want to have a billion-dollar company. It's right. not my goal mm-hmm. but I want to have a tribe of people that I can support and I think when people see themselves as separate that's where they get stuck because but at the same time though that being said like I will never be able to, to like if LeBron is trying against me right like there's no way I could score a point against LeBron ever uh-huh. right no matter what and that's I'm not sure you know I mean it's the, the way you are I'm not sure I, you know if I if I spent my life dedicated towards that in that moment over the next couple of years maybe but a point you know two points but it's no, when you listen, you wrestle people and all that kind of stuff, and you said you're fast, so I can see you through the legs, legs right? One quick one, <laughs> you know what I mean? turn Bars around, one quick like one. crossover, or whatever. Right? <laughs> I don't know if you can do a crossover, you might a cross under, <laughs> cross under. That's yeah, yeah, that's my move. But it's, I think it's, it's anybody that's watching this, like they cannot think that that there's like something that people in this book have that that they don't even right. if that's not true it's a i think just to have that belief that there's nothing that separates them yeah because we all we all i get afraid often right we we all doubt ourselves how do we get rid of that doubt each day well the first step i think is is like giving up the idea that it's ever going to go away it it definitely can like can quiet down now that I've climbed Kilimanjaro and Aconcagua, the high peak in South America, you know, it's two of the highest mountains in the world, I can, you know, I, I know that if I'm going to go and take on a local mountain here, it's like there's not a whole lot of doubt there, right? Before, it might have been more doubt and wondering how we'd go and do it. So that doubt might not ever go away as long as you're continually expanding and trying new things. Well, I think that, uh, you know, we touched on it earlier, but I, I was watching something on you when you were climbing Kilimanjaro and you said something that was really powerful. And when you were climbing that mountain, and you looked ahead of the mountain, and then you looked back, what did you say? Yeah, it was the moments where I was like, so focused on the summit that I got discouraged. You know, it was like when I looked back and could see how far we'd come, that was the most beautiful moment I had on Kilimanjaro. Well, I'd say the second most, the most beautiful moment and the most, the biggest honor of my life was I got the chance and the honor to carry um, a, uh, the ashes of a fallen veteran named Corey Johnson to the summit. His mom asked me. But my second favorite moment on, on the mountain was like about, 2,000 feet below the summit, and we're sitting on this ice field, and the sun rose, and we could look back and see the rainforest that we were in when we started, and the rainforest was like 85, 90 degree African rainforest, and now we're sitting on this ice field. It's like, we come so far. And it was only those moments where I, I was so fixated on like where I had to go and not how far I'd come that I got discouraged. And that's what a lot of people do, I think. They think, they think about the end goal and they get so discouraged when they just don't turn around and look at how far that they've come. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, brother. Fun out. Yeah, you are yours. <laughs> All right, it's growth time again, and we're back with Ian Siegel, CEO of Zip Recruiter. All right, Ian. How do you know if you have a good business idea? Well, I get asked for feedback on aspiring entrepreneurs' business ideas all the time, and I have watched them pitch their ideas to countless people for feedback, and what I've discovered is it's really hard to get people to tell you the truth. That's just simple fact. 
They don't wanna upset you and they don't wanna argue with you. So here's my rule. Here's Ian's one simple trick for knowing if you have a good business idea. Mm -hmm. Pitch your idea to someone and stare at their eyebrows. Ignore all the words that come out of their mouth. If their eyebrows go up, it means they understand what you're saying and they like what they're hearing. If their eyebrows scrunch, your business isn't ready for prime time. It sounds simple, but the eyebrows never lie. So true. Body language is almost over 60% of communication. People just can't control their eyebrows. <laughs> Good point. Nice tip. Thanks for having me. If you're a growing business, ZipRecruiter can help you hire the right people. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. Once again, try ZipRecruiter for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, there is a whole lot more where that came from. I break things down even further in my new book and audiobook, Rise and Grind. I also share how I've incorporated some of these principles into my own life and use them to stay motivated and focused. Check out Rise and Grind wherever books and audiobooks are sold. And if you want more info on what I'm up to, check out DamonJohn.com and follow me on social media at The Shark Damon.